0: John chapter seven, the Gospel of John chapter seven, verses one through nine. Several word of prayers we get ready to dive into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we worship and praise and glorify and lift high your worthy name. We're thankful, Lord, that you are who the Bible reveals you to be. And you did and completed the work you set out to accomplish, as you always do. We're thankful, Lord, that you are trustworthy. God, as try as we might to be men and women and boys and girls of integrity, Our words cannot be fully trusted, but I praise your name this morning that your words can, and that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld your glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You decreed from the foundation of the world that salvation was going to be through the death of a sinless substitute. That would be none other than your Son. And through the pages of Scripture, we see your revelation unfold. Not something that unfolds as far as you're concerned, but something that's been revealed that's already been done. We rest in His finished work. We truly can have the rest as promised in the Scriptures. For we cease from our works and our futile and unsuccessful attempts to be right with you and throw ourselves on Calvary and rest fully in your work to make us right with you and to gift us with the gift of righteousness. The righteousness which is by faith. And we thank you, Lord. And we pray now as you speak to us through your word. And God, you would open up our hearts to whatever you would say this morning. We know you're not limited by any means. the only thing that stands to limit You this morning in Your Word will be our disbelief. Father, we want to fully trust You and have a heads-up orientation to calibrate our thoughts toward You. To be Godward in our thoughts, Godward then will we be in our actions. Because we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the power of Your Word. And we pray now not to be informed, but we pray through openness and faith. To what you have to say to be transformed. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In honor and respect for God's precious word, if you're physically able, will you stand with me while we read from it? We're going to go from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. And now the Jews' feast of the tabernacle was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. By God's grace, and I've sought the Lord and asked Him, I wish I had a dollar for every time I've done it. Where do we go next, Lord, in the Scriptures? And unless something changes, what I sense He's doing right now is we're going to go through a study of the book of Revelation. Um, We're probably going to do that, God willing, in two weeks, two weeks from today. In the meantime, I wanted to pose this question, I believe that the scriptures would have us pose this morning. And, and don't, don't be repelled by this, this question, these couple of questions, but let's just let them weigh down. Let's consider them for a moment. Just consider them. Does the world hate you? And if not, why not? Does the world hate you? And if not, Why not? We find in John chapter 7 things reaching a fevered pitch. The Jews are getting more and more upset with Jesus and more and more determined to get rid of him. We see that in the narrative here because he's encouraged to go right in the epicenter of what would be the place of his death. And he Calls back from it not because he's trying to avoid his death but because it happened on God's timing and not man's we've celebrated the scripture before and the truth of the matter is that it was not an angry Roman or a uh, tyrannical Roman government that offered up Jesus on the cross it was not an angry Jewish mob but it was God the Father God put his son on the cross nobody's going to take his life Uh, He laid it down. He's God. And for me, that just amazes me more. and makes me want to worship Him more, to be honest with you. That God would do that. That God would do that. And it would be His Son through whom He did it to purchase me and you. And so now things are are, are reaching the, the, the zenith of the hatred toward Him of His own, who rejected Him. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. And now he's approached by his earthly brothers. The Bible tells us in a couple of spots that he had four. In Matthew chapter 13 verse 55 it records that Jesus had four half-brothers. Their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And we know that they were half-brothers because Jesus was virgin-born. Uh, Mary was his biological mother, but she was supernaturally uh, with child by the Holy Spirit. And so he had a earthly mother, but heavenly father. The rest of his siblings born after him were born through the union, natural union of Mary and her husband Joseph. So he had four brothers that we know of. And these four brothers, it tells us in the Scriptures, that not a one of them believed in him. They were not believers. And here comes the time of Feast of Tabernacles. Curiously enough, the Feast of the Tabernacles was the most popular of all the Jewish feasts. And central to that feast were rites of water drawing, drawing water, and rites of lamp lighting. So the light of the world was about to be poured out freely in order to give men the right to drink. From the water of life. Hallelujah. So the symbolism here is great. We won't get into all that, but this is the Lamb of God approaching the cross of Calvary, the place where he came for. And we have his brothers and they're contending with him, and basically they're not asking him to show himself openly so that they can derive some kind of spiritual benefit from it. We can only we can only speculate what their motives were but I suspect that one of them might have been well just so if he just happens to be the king of the Jews if it just so happens to work out that this carpenter turned religious leader off base weird brother of mine just happens to want to be in the Messiah why don't you just go right in uh, to Jerusalem and sit on the throne that would be rightfully yours and if you do that and you do that at our bidding perhaps we stand to gain from your rule We'll be part of the inner circle. We'll live in the White House. We'll be right there. We'll be a part of your administration. So they're kind of hedging their bets there and have no idea why he came. They had no idea what was going on. You can bet this and you can mark this down. The motivation for them encouraging him to go to what would it be, quote, unquote, his premature death was self-serving. It had nothing to do with redemptive purposes. You remember... That's what Jesus called out Peter for when Peter said uh, in the aftermath of his disclosure, I'm going to go into Jerusalem, then I'm going to be crucified, scourged, beat, crucified, and I'll raise from the dead three years later. Any questions? And Peter says, may this never be. And he turns around to him and says, Peter. He didn't call him Peter. He said, get thee behind me. Satan, because your mind is set on earthly interests, the interests of men, you're self serving in what you're saying right there, and you have no idea. I did not come. I did not come to sit on the throne of David right now. I came to die on the cross. So these brothers were guilty of the same thing because they weren't believers, so they certainly had no redemption in view. They had no substitution in view. They had no idea that he was indeed the Lamb of God. And two of them. Curiously enough, went on to write two books of the Bible. James was the pastor at the church in Jerusalem and um, a leader among the Jews, the Jewish converts, in the aftermath of Pentecost. And Judas uh, is Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, the next to the last book in the canon, in our order of things, just before Revelation. But both of them, both of them did not convert until after the resurrection. So they were unbelievers until after the resurrection. And that apparently tipped them over. And they became believers and became leaders in the early church. But this business about the fact that let's try to, let's try to, let's try to make things conform to our own terms. That's what the world is. The world is not offended by Jesus per se. They're just offended by the biblical Jesus. It's the biblical Jesus that gives them problems. Not Jesus, but the biblical Jesus. Because there are all kinds of things that are floating around about Jesus. Being a good teacher, a religious leader, somebody who ran his mouth a little bit too much and gave us a good example for how we ought to live, but just would not shut his mouth and got himself killed. But that he is Lord is the offense. But see, the God of this age, the little G, wants no competitors. And Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and so his brothers are trying to talk him out of what he was doing. And so, look at um, uh, look at Mark six, verses one through six. Mark six, verses one through six. The Gospel of Mark. No surprise, this will be found there because the Gospel of Mark's theme is that Jesus is the suffering servant the theme of the Gospel of Mark. just want to encourage you about something. We've talked about this before. Uh, many of you have relatives who have not yet come to saving faith. So do I. And sometimes, and often the case, it seems like it's the hardest mission field that you'll ever have. And if that feels that way to you, I would encourage you this morning that you're in good company. Because that's exactly the experience of our Lord. Look at it. It says, Then when he went out from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? That such mighty works are performed by his hands, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James? And hear their names: Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And are we not his sisters here? With, his sisters here with us. So they were offended at him. But Jesus came to the, and said to this, said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. The mission field indeed is very hard for those who are closest to you. That was the experience of Jesus. Don't let... Discouragement set in if that be your experience. Just bring yourself to your knees and pray. And when you have an opportunity to share the gospel and God opens up the door, seize it. Because see, familiarity could breed contempt. They were looking at him going, you know what, I know your dad, I know your earthly father, he's a great carpenter, he taught you the trade, and now all of a sudden you've got these great transcendent truths to share with people, and you're performing miracles, where did he get that from? I mean, I played baseball with you, we were on the same soccer team, you were raised exactly the way I was, and now you've come up, and I don't know what kind of tangent you're on, but it really I find, find it hard to believe your claims, because we were just raised in a normal setting together. People who knew, your family members who closely knew you and did indeed know you and helped raise you perhaps. And now all of a sudden you've got on this tangent and it seems to have stuck. And they can't talk you out of it. And they're perplexed by it and they look like a cow looking at a new gate. And just wonder, what is this? Maybe they'll get over it sooner or later. Maybe this will run out. Maybe they're on a tangent and this will, the fuel will run out. And then finally after years they begin to take a look and go, wow, it's not running out. There is something different. Hang in there. Persevere. Trust God. Love Him and love them. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit believing. Don't quit praying. It was the experience of our Lord. So that bled over into this moment that we have here with the disciples. Let's go look at Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 34. You'll be familiar with this one. Look at Mark chapter 3, 31 through 34. then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside they sent to him calling him and a multitude was sending around him and they said to him look your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you but he answered them saying who is my mother or my brothers and he joked, he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said here are my mothers and my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So what they were trying to do was as they were trying to bring him back to his senses. They were saying, you know what? you got this wild hair. You're making these claims and it looks like you're, somehow or another God's graced you with miracles. And you're claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the one who's going to die for the sins of the world. You made all these big giant claims. And Quit. You're going to get yourself killed. Let me tell you something right now. There will be good many people in your family that will never understand the depths of your surrender. They'll never understand it. Don't expect them to. As a matter of fact, there are believers who won't understand it. God's going to lead you to do some things in your life if you're surrendered to Him that makes sense to no one around you. But makes sense to Him. I would rather be a fool in the eyes of the world And wise in the eyes of God. Than to be a fool in the eyes of God. And wise in the eyes of the world. Because it's going to be one or the other. You keep your eyes on Jesus. Because He will lead you in every area of your life. To do things and surrender to Him. That make sense to no one around you. We lift Jesus knew why they were out there, but we lift from the Scriptures. The Scriptures reveal to us in the preceding chapter why they were there. Look at it in verse 20. Back up a little bit. It says, Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when His own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of Him, for they said, He is out of His mind. you got relatives. I guarantee you. If you surrender your life to Christ as a Christian, but you put your hand to the plow and say, I'm going to die on the altar of living sacrifice, and God, you can take me and my future and do whatever you want to with it, there will be people who love you who will think you're out of your mind. Because look at it. When it said, but when his own people heard about this, that is referring to his family. The Greek word from which that comes can mean friends or close to associates, but in the strictest sense, it means family. It's saying his own family. You have lost your mind. Christ's family. And it wasn't like he was a non-believer, and he got converted after he left the home. And they knew his life before he got converted. He's the Son of God in need of no conversion. He lived a perfect life in front of them. All the time that they were raised together, and more than likely became the head of the home and the head breadwinner because his earthly father probably passed away. And he became the guy through his carpentry work that took up the trade. And these folks who were raised with him said, He's lost his mind i tell you something. Be careful when you give people counsel. Be careful if they're being led to do something that you think strange. Watch it with your children. Be careful with your children. Don't ever prevent your children from their surrender. Don't ever prevent it. Don't ever think you're out of your mind. Don't ever think, if I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to let Him have my life and I'm going to put it on the line for me and I'm going to move to wherever to share the gospel, the only prayer I pray for my family as far as that's concerned is I pray for my children. God, the Lord of the harvest, would you send them out into the harvest field of ministry wherever you want to send them and help me to be nothing but an influence in their life for them to follow you wherever that may be, whatever that may be, whenever it may be, you follow Jesus. And please help me to be on the sidelines encouraging their surrender and not holding up a lovingly hand, quote unquote, to prevent it. The best thing I could ever want with my children and the best thing I could ever want for any of you is that you follow Christ no matter what. No matter what. His own family said he was out of his mind. We're going to talk him out of it. We're going to have a little sidebar conversation. Go ahead and finish your talk with the people. But you come here, and your mother's got something to say to you. Have you gone crazy? The price is too high. It's too much. The consecration—it doesn't. Oh, it's not going to make much of a difference. These people hate your guts. These people that you're telling us now in these little secret conversations that you love, surely, surely, when he was making a cedar chest or, a, or, or making a dresser for somebody or a chair, he said, listen, I'm sawing and bring, doing all this as, as part of the Father's plan, but let me tell you why I'm here, James. I'm here to die. I came to redeem people from their sin and save them from an eternity in hell to a sure eternity in heaven. That's why I am here. You know he told them that. You know they were aware of that. But what were they trying to do? Talk about it. Quit this! You're an embarrassment to the family. My goodness, Looney Tune family! They'll call us. What kind of son did you raise? Are you crazy? So grateful I didn't listen to him, aren't you? Look at it. Then we move on. Look at Matthew. Look at it. Keeps on going. Look at John, chapter one. I'm mean, at chapter 7 in our narrative at hand. The Feast of the Tabernacles. This is a high time. Everything that's going on right now is pointing to Him. His brothers now. He's talking about His, his family. His, his James and His three brothers. Said to Him, Depart from here go into Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. Alright, we can see. You're the King. Okay. If you are, then why don't you go and authenticate your kingship by going into Jerusalem and performing the miracles that we're seeing you do out here? And then they'll surely believe. Does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound familiar? Does that not hearken back or fast forward to what happened in Matthew chapter 27, verse 39? Let's go look at it. Matthew chapter 27, verse 39. At the foot of the cross while Jesus is hanging there, let's fast forward. It's the same attitude. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down on the come down from the cross. And likewise the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said to him, He saves others, or he saved others himself, he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. And we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who who were crucified with him reviled him in the same thing. It's the same thing. Jesus, All right, If you're going to stay on this tangent, and nobody can talk you out of it. At least go into the epicenter of Jerusalem. And do something spectacular. And they'll fall at your feet. And we will rise to the occasion with you. They'll just love you. And they'll realize that the King of glory has come in their midst. we talked about this before. Raising Lazarus from the dead didn't do it. Taking the hand and giving it strength that was withered one time didn't do it. Giving a a person who was lame the ability to walk didn't do it. Giving sight to the blind didn't do it. He comes on that cross. I don't think that's going to do it either. It is to the cross. It is the cross. It is the cross. I love it. I love the analogy. I read it in an Adrian Rogers book one time about kingdom authority. And he said, and I've given this before, that Napoleon, in the aftermath of his defeat and his, his demise of his rule, got out a map and had all his commanders surrounding him. And he pointed to Waterloo. And he said, gentlemen, if it hadn't been for that spot on that map right now, my kingdom would have endured. And Brother Adrian said he could just imagine the devil gathered around with his minions looking at the timeline of eternity spread out in front of them. And there's a red spot on that timeline. And it's a place called Calvary. And he looked there and he said, if it hadn't been for that spot right there, I'd have taken over. That's what's at stake. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to deliver us from this present evil age. And it took the cross and there was no other way. And if you and I are going to let Christ have His way with us, it will be through the cross and no other way. He wants to slay us just like He slayed His Son so His resurrected Son can come out of the closet and say, Hallelujah, Jesus Christ is the way. There's a love that perplexes people if it's expressed by Christian people. And it makes them turn their head and take note because we love our enemies because Christ loved His enemies. And we're committed to the Gospel because we know that the Gospel is the answer for whoever And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and everybody stands in need of salvation. I don't care who you are. It doesn't matter. So it's the same old storyline. It wasn't the first time this happened. The cross is where it culminated. Come on, quit! That's what the devil would have you and I do. Oh man, ease the pain and suffering. Check out! Deny your faith. Or at least be apathetic toward it. It's not that big of a deal. Oh man, don't hang in there. perseverance a Christian word. Churchy word. Leave it to Sunday morning. It's only two hours you have to put up with it. It's never mentioned then. Persevere. Come on. What's wrong with you? Come off of that cross. Come out of that situation. Gig yourself out somehow. Avoid it. Don't travel the way of the cross. Someone once said to a very joyous Christian, Oh, I would give the world to have your joy. And this dear saint turned around and said, That's exactly what it will cost you. That's exactly what it will cost you. So, here we are. Here we are. His brothers urging Him, because of their quote-unquote concern for Him, self-serving purposes that Jesus saw right through Quit this quit this tangent. Let's move on. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Your time is already ready. Aren't you grateful for that? The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. I can't think of a better day to get saved than today. Can you? I shared the gospel with plenty of people who said, even recently, a guy guy told me, he said, well, I tell you this, here's the thing, I'm comfortable where I am right now. I know I'm going to go to hell. But, Before I I leave, I'm going to make it right. I said, that is a foolish thing to do. Because you have no idea. You don't negotiate the terms of your death. I said, we could pull out of here right now. I could pull out on 41. I could see 41 from where his office. I said, I could pull out of 41 right now and pull out in front of a car and that would be over with for me. It doesn't mean that you're going to die because of cancer. You're going to linger around on your deathbed and have plenty of time to make whatever decision you want to make. Today, is a day of salvation. That's what Jesus was saying to him. My time's not yet come, but yours is already open and ready. But my crucifixion and my death will happen on my terms, and that's how you can suffer and endure through yours. It's because whatever God's doing to get you out of you happens on God's timetable and God's discretion under God's sovereignty, and He's your Father, and you and I can trust Him. Amen? But here, right here, We're coming to this place right here. The world cannot hate you. The world cannot hate you. To me, the, the world doesn't hate you. The world has no capacity to hate you. But it hates me. Now, wouldn't that beg the question? that he answers after he says that? What if he just said that and said, you know, the world, the world can't hate you, but he hates me. Let's go to Subway. <laughs> Get a chicken sandwich there. Amen. Why? It's very, very simple. Very simple. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. You know, you and I are in the world, but as believers, we're not of it. We're not of it. We're not of it. And Jesus says, the world hates you, guess what? It hated me before it hated you. Matter of fact, it's hatred for you. Comes from, it's hatred for me. And so in the age that we live in, we've said, okay, let's come up with a hybrid Christianity. We'll still call it Christianity, but let's come up with A way to get through this world as followers of Christ and come up with a gospel that will dodge the hatred that the true gospel brings. Let's do it. Let's do it. And you know what? In this culture, we've done it. We've done it. We've done it. You see, Christ's life was light. Jesus didn't say, I just bring light. He said, I am light. And when He stepped on the scene, the room lit up. And everything that's righteous appreciates it. But everything that's not scurries off like the roaches that Joe tries to kill every day. You turn on the light in your kitchen, if the roaches are in there, they're gone because the light got turned on. And Jesus said, This is why the world hates me. It's because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Its deeds are evil. I don't know how many times this has been proven to us as Christians. Uh, recently, there's a movie out that's attracted some attention. And it does what God never does under God's name. And that is put God on trial. So now the jury becomes skeptics and people who have questions. So can we have questions? And they get to sit in the place of the judge and God sits in the seat of the accused. And we're supposed to make a case for God. Can I let's clarify something right now. Let's make it abundantly clear. God is the judge. He is not in the seat of the accused. The Apostle Paul went from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and spent 64 verses of the Romans letter, 64 verses of airtime, to act as the prosecuting attorney against all of mankind to conclude this the whole world is guilty. That's it. There's not one thing in the Bible in which God makes a case for himself. God does not argue for his existence. The Bible assumes his existence because embedded in every man's heart is the fact that there is a God. And so what we've done is if we put God on trial and we throw bullets at Him like, okay, I'll believe, but you explain to me evil. Go ahead! How'd it happen? You couldn't do anything about it? So you're not God, you're not that powerful, or you couldn't do something about it and you didn't, so you must be evil. Hmm. I've got you now. And we're all waiting for somebody to brandish the smoking gun and come up with the argument that's good enough to come against that. Well, the question should be is this. Let me ask you a question. You ever told a lie? Yeah. Then you're a liar. You ever stole anything? Yeah. It means you're a thief. You ever committed murder? No, no. You ever been mad enough for somebody to kill them? Yeah. God can't even prosecute you for murdering somebody, the Lord will prosecute you for thinking about it. You ever committed adultery? Oh, no, I've always been faithful. You ever thought about it? In bad ways and had sexually immoral thoughts? Yep. Your wife will divorce you maybe for adultery. God will send you to hell for thinking about it. You see? We've played into that. This is why we have courted friendship with the world. We just want everybody to like us. Oh, if we could just be liked. Everybody be liked. We don't set out for them not to. We don't act ugly. But I'm going to tell you something right now. The message is offensive, but the messenger must never be. The message is offensive, but the messenger must never be. And the message to a lost person is, you are a sinner. And sin results in death. And that is eternal separation from God in an eternal hell where there is conscious suffering the likes of which you can't even imagine for eternity. That's the testimony of the Gospel as it starts that's it. The Bible says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Look at John chapter 3. Jesus said it's spoken over there. Look at John chapter 3. I'm not saying those questions threaten God. I'm just saying they're the wrong questions. And we need to start driving the discussion rather than giving up our sword and following it. Look what it says verse 18 he who believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because why? because their deeds are evil for everyone practicing evil what's his disposition toward light? hates it who is the light of the world? Jesus does not come to the light lest His deeds should be exposed. Dear ones, I'll tell you something right now. We need to start loving people enough to tell them the truth. It is a loving act to tell somebody the truth. It is a hateful act to lie to them. The Bible says, in the greatest one of the greatest chapters of the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that love does not rejoice in iniquity. But love rejoices in truth. And it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When you see people who are close to you and you share the gospel with them and they don't cross over the line of faith, just remember this. I cannot rejoice in the iniquity that's killing them. But I rejoice in the truth and I will not concede it for one moment. I will not sacrifice the truth for the sake of unity because to do so means you have no unity. But in waiting for iniquity to be repented of and truth to be embraced, I will bear all things, I will believe all things, I will hope all things, and I will endure all things. That's what that passage means. I will endure their scorn. I will endure their rejection. I will endure their scoffing. I will endure their misunderstanding. I will endure all of it because I bear, believe, and hope in a Lord who, if He can change me, can change anybody. If the gospel can reach me, I've got to figure that Christ can save anybody. Amen? Amen. Mark one thirty-two. We're not going to be able to finish this today. Mark one thirty-two. Oh boy, what a beautiful example! <coughs> Johnny Erickson taught a great testimony, wonderful testimony. I just wept through the whole thing. And she was sharing at this at a conference recently about this business about healing. And she could find a wheelchair. Most of you know her testimony, I'm sure. And she's a quadriplegic, has been for 40 years, and dove into a pond or a lake or something and broke her neck uh, early in her, I think, her early 20s, and been confined to a wheelchair ever since. And just as she came out of that, a believer, she was interested, as you would expect, in being healed and sought God's healing and wanted to come out by that wheelchair. Why not? Early in your life, and even before the prime of your life, You're confined to a wheelchair and certainly you would just say, oh, dear Jesus, please heal me. Any of us would. And she sought for answers about why God would not heal her. What is it that you're up to? i got to have some biblical answers. So she set her Bible, her sister set her Bible in front of a window and she took a stick and she used it to turn the pages of the Bible and just went through the Scriptures and went through the Scriptures and came here, God led her here and gave her the answer as to why. He did not heal her. Look what it says in verse 32. At evening when the sun had set, they brought to Him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And then He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He did not allow the demons to speak because they knew Him. And now in the morning, having arisen a long while before daylight, He went out and departed to a solitary place and there He prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. Little wonder. Wouldn't you be looking for him? If you had any kind of ailment, you'd be looking for him. Oh, man, word got out. He's healing everybody. Man, get in line. And so the crowds are coming up. And look what he says. You would think, my ministry's reached a fever pitch. Words got out. Testimony has been given. Things are happening. They're miraculous. That guy I know to be a cripple. He was crippled all his life. He comes back home last night. And lo and behold, he can walk. I've got a cousin who's got a blood disease. Get him over there. I've got a cousin who's got a limp arm. Get him over there. Let's get everybody to him as quick as we can. And what does he say? After spending time with the Father in solitary communion, he says, but he said to them, this is the way she put it when God gave it to her, let us go into the next town. And she was thinking, what? You this campaign going on, this citywide healing And you're going to the next town? You're the God I know to be compassionate and merciful and kind and the one who's given me peace when I shouldn't have it? You're the one who saved me? You've done all those things for me? You want to go to the next village? Is that what you're like? But he said to them, let's go to the next town. Why? That I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And she said, for the very first time it hit her. God did not come and send His Son on the cross to get me out of this wheelchair. God sent His Son to die on the cross to deliver me from the penalty, the power, and the presence of my sin. It was the only way, and God did it. It is through His suffering that I'm going to be one day released fully from mine. And that's why He came. We've got to get back to this. I have to tell you that I wonder sometimes if our mission endeavors have, come, have become nothing more than international travel. Where we just go to a place and just travel there hoping that we can just be kind to somebody. And there's nothing wrong with being kind to somebody. It's right to be kind to somebody. But when Jesus faced the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler was trying to negotiate salvation on his terms. After all, he got rich by being a good negotiator. And he was going to talk God into some kind of some kind of contorted way for to get himself into heaven. And Jesus said, here's how you do it, obey the law. And he went, I've done it all my life. And Jesus said, you're crazy you haven't done it all your life sell everything you got and give to the poor and then you can have eternal life and come and follow me and Christ said that to him because he was a covetous man and the Bible says thou shalt not covet and he thought all this will get him he'll understand and the Bible says he walked away sorrowful unrepentant but guess what it says in Mark's account of that Jesus loved him how much did he love him? he loved him enough to tell him the truth Many of us are courting favor with the world simply because we want to be liked. And our reason for doing that is sinful, carnal, and unchristian. Mark it down. I don't care where you are right now. I don't care where you work or where you go and come. You are sovereignly put there by God to give witness to His Son. That's it. Otherwise, he'd have just called you up like he did Elijah. Come up here. I'm tired of this distance. We have to, we're going, I, I want to go further than this, but Here's here's the issue. A spirit-filled Christian who walks with Christ is going to be hated by this world. A carnal Christian who's apathetic will not. And to live in that ap- apathy and be okay with it, or excuse it away, gives rise to whether or not there ever has been a new birth. And I tell you this, the people in Kenya suffer. The people in Kenya have hard lives. They do. It's a third world country. But I can tell you this, we can send all the money we can send over there to help them with their school fees and meet their felt needs and take the gospel out of it and guess What? they still die and go to hell if you do that. Whereas they remain in their suffering for the rest of their life and die and go to the same place. He's sharing the gospel and He's equipping people to share the gospel. You know how to share the gospel. If you're saved, you know how to share the gospel. I'm telling you, you know how to share the gospel if you're saved. You're not saved. That's why you don't know how to share the But let's be faithful to the gospel, to the whole enchilada. Let's don't parse it out and have smorgasbord Christianity and say, you know what, hmm, I like that, and others will like that as well, and I like that, but I don't care for that. So we'll leave that out of it, and we'll kind of do this, that, we'll dance there, and everybody will just think so much of me. Oh, aren't you just great? I want people to walk away from me and say, God is great. Salvation is great. And I need Him desperately. I need Him desperately. According to the favor of the world. Because listen to this, and here's the piano part. The world is our enemy. The Bible says that friendship with the world makes us what? Enemies of God. The Bible calls Christians who are at friendship with the world Adulterers and adulteresses. James 4, 4. And he's saying, you are spiritual harlots when you do that. Here's the question. I want to ask you a question. How does God treat his enemies? He loves them, hunter. He loves them. If God did not love His enemies, nobody in this room would have ever been loved by God. Because when you got saved, you were what? Romans chapter 5, verse 10. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, much more, by His death, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved By His life. Here's the point. Don't leave here without this. If God does not love His enemies, you are not saved. And you could never be saved. Because you and I were His enemies when He died for us. And we are lying out of our teeth if we say we love somebody and we withhold the hope that they so desperately need to know about. We are lying. We're not telling the truth. We're not. And this grieves me to no end because you see it all around us. And we've got to quit the foolishness and maybe make bishop trips, mission trips, to rescue the perishing, care for the dying because Jesus is merciful. Jesus still saves. It is with a broken heart we tell people that they're going to hell apart from Christ. But it is with a loving heart that we tell people they're going to hell apart from Christ. Ray Steadman tells a story about how a young man, two young men were talking and he said, we got a new pastor at our church. He said, really? Yeah. Just got a new pastor. He said, well, how about that? He said, what happened to the old one? He said, well, it got to the point where he was just telling us all the time that we were going to hell. Apart from Christ, and he said, "What about the new one?" He said, "He habitually tells us we're going to hell apart from Christ." He said, "What's the difference?" He said, "Well, when the first one told us, he seemed to enjoy it. When the second told us, he told us with a broken heart. Does the world hate you? If not." Meaning we set it out. Don't saddle that. Say, I'm gonna set it out. I'm just gonna go make everybody mad and make them hate me. That's you know better than that. But to declare the praises of the one who still saves sinners. It is a faithful saint. Them to see the beauty of the gospel like never before when you love them. And you tell them the truth. And you wipe their feet. And you wash your feet with tears over their fate apart from Christ. Let's bow in prayer. You want everybody to like you? It's understandable. I'm that way too. that way by nature that's our natural bent our supernatural bent though is not that at all I dare say that while we've been in this section of scripture I suspect that probably God's laid on your heart people that you've probably courted favor with or been reluctant to tell them the truth simply because you're afraid it'll destroy the relationship or, or it'll it'll make it a, it'll keep it at a distance. Maybe they won't call as often. Maybe they won't call at all. Maybe they'll write it write me off as being lost my mind, like Jesus and his family thought about him. Maybe my home family will think that way about me. Maybe they'll misunderstand. Maybe they'll misinterpret. Dear ones, dear ones, as we're praying, if you tremble. The notion of sharing the gospel with somebody, you're in good company because the Apostle Paul said in First Corinthians to the Corinthian church, I came to you in fear and trembling because he knew that testimony was probably going to get him in prison and may get him killed. He said, But I had I pretended to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper let's ask God to forgive us for our apathy let's ask God to forgive us for our courtship with the world because to love the world is to be honest with them and to serve them and to go through the rejection and the hostility because you know they desperately need Jesus Father thank you very much for speaking to our hearts where we know that if we're going to follow you there's a price tag associated with that not to redeem us but just as a consequence of having been redeemed thank you that you told us that up front. You don't lure us into a trap and then say, well, here's, here's the deal. You tell us up front. Pray, Father, for me and for the rest of our fellowship here that we would surrender, that you would lift us from apathy, lift us from fear, and help us to follow you, Jesus. wherever you lead we will go thank you for the power of the gospel and thank you for the beauty the absolute beauty of our savior please grant us repentance today help us to quit courting the world and nestle up to our husband. Whose name is Jesus Christ? Sweet name, we pray. Brian will come. Brothers, you'll come.